Welcome to the New Line Podcast. Our show is a conversation with experienced software engineers where we discuss new technology, career advice, and help you be amazing at work. I'm Nate. And I'm Amelia Wattenberger. And today we're talking with creative coder Cassie Evans. In this episode, we talk about something often neglected in web design today, how to bring whimsy and joy to your users. In our chat, we talk about how the old web had entry points to programming and where we might find that today. We open with a story about how Cassie, as a child, sold animated cursors for donuts, which felt like magic, and how even today, snippets of code still feel like magic spells. We loved our conversation with Cassie, and we think you will too. Let's dig in. We're not live, and so it just wanted to be fun. One of the things is I really love your talks, and you talked about how like how the web needs more whimsy, and yeah. I just love that so much. In one of your talks, you mentioned that you sold Neopets pages for donuts. Yes. Like when you were a child. <laughs> Can you tell me more about that? So for context, I think you and I kind of like grew up with some of the similar early web stuff. For example, when I was younger, I once got on the internet for hours and then my parents were furious because my dad had gotten like an accident at work and his boss was supposed to call and I'd been tying up the internet because I was on dial up for like hours. <laughs> and yeah, I just love the old classic web style like MySpace and Neopets. We can get into that song, but can you tell me about how you sold Neopets pages for donuts? Yes, definitely. So yeah, firstly, you mentioned dial up. I miss that so much. It's so close to my heart because I remember we had one computer home that was our home computer and I was only allowed to use it for educational things for allotted times. And I used to wait until my parents were asleep and then I'd creep downstairs with blankets and I'd have to wrap the whole computer up in the blankets so that it wouldn't make the noises <laughs> so that I could dial up to the internet and I'd just sit there clutching it to my chest trying to dampen down the noises so they wouldn't wake up. Why <laughs> were modems so loud, right? So loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even that noise now gives me anxiety because it, it sounds <laughs> like being downstairs terrified that my parents are going to wake up at any moment. I love that. But yeah, the donuts. So I didn't have money for the tuck shop when I was younger. I got school dinners. Um, I didn't have packed lunch boxes and they weren't really into giving us sugary snacks. They were quite healthy. So I kind of got quite jealous about all of the other kids having donuts from the tuck shops. And around that time, everyone started making MySpace profiles and Neopets pet pages. And my one was really good. And lots of people asked me whether I could make them sparkly curses and stuff. So I started up a little side hustle. <laughs> and swapped sparkly cursors for donuts. It was excellent. What is the deal? Is it like one cursor for one donut? Yeah, I think it was something like that, cursor for a donut. <laughs> this is amazing. I don't actually understand how this would work. So you, how much programming was it? Were you like finding gifts? I'm interested in, you know, particularly in the one for the entrepreneurship side, two, because it's like on brand that you're adding sparkles. And then three is a learning programming aspect. I love this idea, for example, that some of the best ways to learn are just when you're self-motivated and you're just like trying to do stuff. I learned how to program because I was tweaking web pages this similar way and I worked my way down. So I'm interested. I didn't actually use Neopets necessarily, but like what were these cursors and how did that work for as much as you remember? As much as I remember, I think it was very much accidental. I don't think that I realized that I was coding at the time. I didn't really have much of an awareness of what coding was. 
I used to play The Sims and some other early games as well. And, and they had like cheat codes that you could type. And so I kind of saw it as the same thing. It was like internet cheat codes that you went to some websites and they had pictures of different sparkly cursors or different backgrounds um, or different CSS effects. And you just copied a cheat code and then you put that cheat code onto your... And I didn't really know that that's what the building blocks of the web were. I didn't understand that at the time. I thought that they were little magical snippets that you just... I mean, they still are. Right, they still are. They still are magical snippets, aren't they? I still feel like that nowadays. Like some new CSS comes out and I'm just like, wow, another magical snippet. This is amazing. (laughs) Keep making them. (laughs) Yeah. And I learned some early programming. We would play these old games. They were called MUDs. So you telnet in, right? It's like before SSH. You telnet. It's like SSH, but insecure. You telnet into these servers and play these text games, whereas you'd go to the sword shop or whatever, and you buy a sword. And and then I remember that what we would do is we were like, oh, we could host our own server. It's the same sort of thing. We didn't know we were coding. We were just copying and pasting these codes, like make our own server. And then we're like, oh, we could give ourselves our own items. We would copy this snippet and then you sort of realize now you have these godlike powers of playing this game that you enjoy and then realize like, oh, shoot, like what else could I do with this power? And that was actually one of my entry points programming too. And I think that's really special. And one of the things that you've talked about too is, well, I don't know, what are some of these entry points that people have now? What could we do to give this serendipitous entry point into coding for kids today? It's really difficult because I've kind of looked around and I haven't found anything that has that same kind of accidentally educational aspect to it. There's some really amazing things that have the same sense of community because Neopets for me and MySpace to a degree had this community aspect where there were lots of other young kids who were all hacking around and changing things and you kind of learn things from each other. So I think that we definitely got that in platforms like CodePen and Glitch like they're really great because they lower the barrier to entry. They abstract away all of the fiddly setup and build tools and all of that stuff. And they allow people to just jump in and start making things and kind of remix things that other people have made and fork things that other people have made. So I think that's really great. But I don't think that we really have any of those accidentally educational things around anymore, which is a shame. People have to be a lot more intentional. They have to kind of want to learn and know what they're there for in order to start off. I also think about this with cars. I think it's a little bit related. When I first started dating my husband, he had a, it was like 69 Mercury Cougar, like a really old car and he could work on it because there's no computer. You can understand what the parts are pretty easily. You can just look at them and be like, okay, this turns and it turns this other thing. And I think the internet say is so much more complicated. And the bar for what's cool on the web is so much higher that when we were kids, and we made a sparkly cursor, like even our parents would be like, Oh, wow, like, how did you do that? It's hard to make something impressive now. And it's just like, so overwhelming. So I think that's also part of why like glitch and CodePen can be so helpful. Because they like take care of like the nitty gritty for you so you can focus on being creative. I'm optimistic. I think that I've seen some movement there with Minecraft, maybe. Roblox is interesting. 
yeah, there's some interesting ideas happening there. There's even some interesting, like more deliberate, like code for kid tools. There's one called Microsoft Make Code Arcade. It's sort of like Scratch, but it's designed for building games. But even that, it like borders on educational, right? I think there's something special where it's like not deliberately educational, but you learn from it. That that's important. Scratch is so cool. I really love Scratch. The Harvard computer science course, the first thing that they get you to do is a, a thing in Scratch. When I started that, I was like, oh, I bet this is like really, it's really hard. It's that like Harvard computer <laughs> science course. And then they were like, we're going to build a game in Scratch. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love that. Like, I can do <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. I hope that there's more tools that come out, particularly on tablets because one of the things i noticed with like my kids is that they're using an ipad a lot more frequently than they're using a computer i think just the ethos and the ecosystem of tablet apps is it's a lot more locked down right it's you can't necessarily like look under the covers like you would with you know view source on a web page and i think any tools like that that sort of let you learn are really interesting there's a scratch junior that my kids use just to build little stories and like little animations. And I love that, but there's not too many tools yet, but I'm hoping we can create more. I feel like there's some stuff in the hardware hacking, like crafting worlds. I think that coding and crafting the intersection of that, there's some quite interesting stuff happening because I think you can fall into that accidentally as well. If you're kind of interested in hacking around with things, you can end up oh, well, I, I want to make these lights flash and oh, I'm going to have to learn Python in order to do that. So I think that, that that's still kind of, yeah, accidental gateway into things. Yeah, I love that. I think some of the people I used to work with, they would spend time with their kids, like making a Halloween skull with an Arduino that like Amazing. his eyes flashed. And it's like such good bonding time and because it's fun for everyone. Like I enjoy doing that. <laughs> I was like, I need a kid, so I need I can have an excuse <laughs> to do this. Right, yeah, I know, right. But our kids are doing that now with cosplay stuff. Is they first were doing little paper craft creatures. So they print off a template and they cut it out and they'd be like, Oh, we want to make our own. So then they're learning how to use like Blender to do their own 3D modeling. To then use there's this tool called Pepakura, which you can use to like slice 3D models down into a little paper craft like Minecraft creature or whatever. And and so then they're learning computer skills for like using Figma to edit the templates and they're using Blender to learn like 3D modeling. They're not good at that yet, but it's, yeah, you can see the progression. They're going to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> I recently watched one of your talks on CSS filters and it totally blew my mind. I've been programming for, you know, since we talked about since dial up and I didn't even know that SVG had filters. I thought that was so fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about your recent work on doing paintings with SVG? Yes. I've really been loving SVG filters recently. I kind of got into a little bit of a slump at the beginning of lockdown where I wasn't feeling creative at all. And the idea of programming, coding sounded not so much fun. I, I wanted to kind of do something a little bit more relaxing. And yeah, I find SVG and SVG filters really fun to play around with because it's more declarative. You have some filter primitives and filter primitives, they work, well, filters, they work a lot like audio programming where you've got inputs and outputs. You can kind of chain things together. So you have different filter primitives inside a filter element. And you can feed the output of one into the input of the next one and the output of the first 
two into the input of another one. And that means that there's like infinite possibilities, but ultimately all you're doing is just changing a couple of values and some attributes. So it feels kind of like putting Lego blocks together. Uh, you don't really have to think through any intricate logic. You can just put some filters together and see what happens. And yeah, I find that really fun. Uh, it's the, the kind of randomness that you get not being able to predict the outcome. I've played around and I accidentally ended up with something that looked a little bit like a pencil line. And then I just kind of riffed on that and made some things that looked a bit like uh, hand sketched paintings, which was a lot of fun. It's gorgeous. Is like the, one of the most beautiful SVGs I've ever seen. We'll put a link in the show notes. And it was just delightful and mind-blowing. And I, I think that you, yeah, your talks on SVG are really a delight. That's so lovely to hear. When you have the chance to play with these things, is that all through just side projects? I know when my, at least my job title was developer, you know, most jobs you don't get to play around or do something super creative. Is this something you get to do in your day-to-day job or is it mostly just side? Yeah, what is your day job? (laughs) My day job, I am a front-end developer at a company called Clearleft in Brighton. I'm lucky because my job, we have a mixture of client projects, but we also, well, not so much right now because of the pandemic, but we also do events and the event sites are kind of a chance to flex your creative muscles a little bit, try out new things. So I get to kind of explore things creatively through the event sites and then kind of focus on building accessible, solid front end websites for my day job. Oh, that's a nice balance of yeah. like the, the more focused and the more creative. Are you usually working with designers? We have a lot of really good designers at ClearLeft. It's hard, but we try to avoid pigeonholing people into just one role. So if people want to explore a little bit more design, but they're a developer, then they try to give people space to do that. So I'm currently working on a little side project site at work. I'm getting to do design and dev on that, which is really nice. You mentioned that you used to draw a lot and I feel that experience shows in your work, right? Like your chameleon, for example, is just adorable and obviously done by someone who has like art skills outside of programming. What does your process look like? Are you sketching out ideas for what you want to see on paper or do you just go straight to SVG? How does that work? It's very much technology driven rather than aesthetics first actually I tend to get ideas because I'll be looking at a particular technology and then I'll think oh how could I demonstrate that or how could I play with that in a way that is aesthetically pleasing or fun like the chameleon I wanted to play around with getting colors from a webcam I did that and it was just changing like a rectangle on the screen to different colors and I was like well that's fun but it would be so much more fun if it was a chameleon so (laughs) and I love that in your work Amelia does this too I think in that you sort of you build something and then it's like okay that's fine but how do we make that more fun and then you'll like take the time to put in those details and it's really delightful yeah I am such a huge fan of Amelia's work your article about the SVG view box I've directed so many people at that. I had a whole lengthy explanation in a workshop that I did about the view box. And then I was just like, well, no, actually just 
look at this wonderful article because it explains it a million times better than I could. Oh, that's so good to hear. I feel like I do these things for myself. I'm like, okay, well, like I need like a little toy example. And then I'm like, well, might as well make it into a telescope. <laughs> might as well just let other people use it. I think the way you described your process is it's very just like playing around for your own personal benefit. And then just like, well, if I enjoy this, other people may also enjoy this. You released your new website recently. And I feel like it got a lot of attention, especially for like the bottom, you have a little SVG of yourself and it like the eyes follow the cursor around and it's just really delightful to play around with because there's so many websites out there it's nice to even like stumble across one where you're like oh this person didn't just like make a nice looking well-designed website they took the next step to make it kind of delightful and take a chance to like connect with the user I love that so much. I'm not a huge fan of really whiz-bang websites. So websites that you land on and just everything animates and, you know, your cursor gets hijacked and your scroll gets hijacked and all of that kind of thing. I find that really overwhelming, but I absolutely love it when I'm navigating around a website that looks on the surface like it's just your average website and then you hover over something or you click something and it does something unexpected and joyful it makes you smile it makes the website feel a lot more human i think you have to really understand how the web works to create a website that's both really easy to read and accessible and also has that next level. Like I feel like it's easy to do like the scroll jacking or just animations everywhere, but to have a little bit of restraint and make it so that people who have slower connections or, you know, using screen readers can even like navigate it as well. I think that's really awesome. Yeah. I think I had a head start because I was using 11T. So you get out of the box just a lot of performance benefits there. It's a static site generator. I think their tagline is it's a very simple static site generator. On the tooling side, I've noticed that you use GreenSock for a lot of your animations. And I've never really used GreenSock, but I've seen that a lot of code pen people use it. Can you just talk about GreenSock a little bit, like what you like about it and explain to me why it's so popular? Yeah, I have to start with a disclaimer that I don't work for GreenSock and GreenSock <laughs> don't pay me any money because whenever I get really excited about GreenSock, <laughs> people are like, she's, she's got to be selling something. Yeah, I love GreenSock so much. There are a whole bunch of different animation libraries out there, like JavaScript animation libraries. And I think if you're doing things with HTML DOM or say you're using a JavaScript animation library to between some 3JS stuff, you're mostly just kind of concerned with changing some numbers and a lot of the animation libraries handle things exactly the same way. But the problem with SVG land is different browsers handle SVG transforms differently. You can end up with things moving around in unexpected ways in some older browsers. And GreenSock, they have kind of gone above and beyond to iron out all of these browser inconsistencies. So you can kind of be very sure that your SVG animations are going to work the way that they should do. They do a lot more, right? They'll make really nice animations between things. They had this new scrolling library, right? Yeah. This is another really cool thing about GreenSock is that they've got the core GreenSock library. Like their licensing model gets a bit misunderstood because they're one of the only 
JavaScript animation libraries that aren't open source, but their core animation library is free for the majority of use cases. I think if you're selling an end product to multiple users, then you have to pay for it. But for 99% of people, it's free. And then they have these additional plugins so the core library kind of does everything that you would need it to do. And then the plugins are extra fun. And some of the plugins are free and then some of them are behind a membership fee. But they've got a whole bunch of different SVG specific plugins. So they've got ones that help with SVG stroke animation and they've got ones that do morphing. And yeah, they've just released Scroll Trigger, which is amazing. I've played around with it a little bit and it uses one event listener behind the scenes so it's really performant and just really intuitive as well i think that's yeah another thing that i really love about greensock is the the docs are they're just really good they've got so many good animated examples in there and the forums are really really friendly it's like the opposite of stack overflow can i say that (laughs) people are nice there (laughs) you post a question and i think as a newbie i started off doing banner ads animation that was my first job and I didn't have anyone to learn from and I had no idea what I was doing and I'd post on the Greensock forum and someone would just jump in and help me out immediately so yeah it's really good that's a really interesting business model it's difficult to explain to people but I understand why they do it because it means that they don't have to rely on any kind of external sponsors they can just focus their time purely on updating it which is why a lot of the other animation libraries don't have the time to put in the effort to make sure that things work with svg cross-browser whereas greensock do oh and it also looks like you can use any of the plugins on codepen yes it's super cool that's the coolest thing i think that's why so many people on codepen use greensock because everything's available to use on there yeah that's super cool i haven't had a chance to play with it yet but it seems like it's a really great way to lower the overhead of if you're like oh i want this button to have like a particle system and explode or like i want it to morph into this other thing it might just be too much work to do we all have deadlines at work so if anything even halves that effort it might just make it worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. I think there's been quite a few times where people have gone, wow, that's a really cool animation that you've done. And then they see that it's like five lines of green top code. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it takes sometimes though. Yeah. Uh. It's also a lot easier to tweak your animations with GreenSock or, or just an animation library in general. I struggle with very complex animations with CSS because you can't chain them together. So it's really nice to have a timeline and all that. Yeah. Are there any other tools like GreenSock that might be really useful for someone who is new to the more creative coding space? I don't know. I'm curious on how to learn how to do SVG animations as well, because I feel like the things that actually both of you create just feel like black magic to me. I don't really (laughs) understand SVG super well, or particularly CSS animations. Golly, I'm not good at that. Golly, (laughs) (laughs) I thought of one which is kind of similar. So I've always felt like I've seen 3D stuff on the web. I don't know what kind of wizard you have to be to have this 3D scene in a web page, but like I will never be there. And then you discover like 3JS and it's like... A-frame as well. A-frame. Yeah, A-frame is really cool. It's like a web framework for building virtual reality experiences. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. Amazing. I love it. And I love how these libraries make even just you have three lines of code and you're like, I have no idea how I did this either. (laughs) I remember when I made my first Taurus knot in Mm -hmm. 3JS and I was so excited about it. (laughs) I think pretty much out of the box, you have to import a plugin, but you can rotate it. You can zoom in and out. You can pan around. It's definitely magic. What's the kind of D3 version of that? Like, is there a good entry point into D3? I have this spectrum in my head of things that are really complicated, but kind of like down to the metal. You can kind of do whatever you want with them. And then the other end is a chart library that'll make a chart for you. You say, do a line chart with this data and it'll make a line chart. And D3 is definitely on the former end where it's like, it gives you tools you need. There's a lot of tools and you kind of have to dig into each one of them. I feel like if you want that, oh my God, this is magic feeling with D3, a lot of people, especially at the beginning, they'll just like look up, there's so many examples online, they'll copy the code and then they'll paste it. And then over two years, they'll understand what each line is doing. Which like, I think everyone who learns C3, this is the way they learn it. Just because those end examples are so cool. And you're like, I want this, I'm going to have it. (laughs) And then you like take it and don't really understand all of it. But then there's also the chart libraries that make it super easy to do a really fancy chart really easily. And we talked a lot about this when we were working with React and D3. I mean, D3 is sort of like React in that it's a ton of different little modules that all sort of work together. If you try to use, for example, D3 with React, it's obnoxious because D3 also takes over like rewriting the DOM for you. One of the things that I would complain to Amelia when she was teaching me this is that to use D3 with React, you basically use React to form all the SVGs and you almost don't need D3 except for like the utility function. I don't actually know what is a good tool that's that's magic for D3. There's React chart libraries that you'll get something really amazing. Be like, I did this. (laughs) We're all on the shoulders of giants. I remember looking into D3. We got a solar panel installed on the roof of our work. And I kind of wanted to hook in, well, you could hook into the API, which is really cool. So I wanted to do that and see what we'd saved. And I looked into D3 and it terrified me. And then I ended up making an illustration of our office building and then in SVG and I've set it up so that with every certain amount of CO2 we save it grows another plant out of like a rooftop garden and I love, then I love how this was easier <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's it's like reaching for the tool that you understand right it's really difficult to make yourself learn new things so I was like this is a great opportunity to learn d3 and then about 24 hours later I was like I'm going to make an SVG. (laughs) (laughs) I think about this a lot where the flow state is in between something that's really boring and something that's really challenging. If something's too challenging and overwhelming, your brain will just like shut off. You'll be like, I can't learn this. And then if it's too boring, your brain also shuts off. It's like, I can just do this in my sleep. I think... A lot of people, when they first look at D3, the like needle goes all the way in the like, this is overwhelming. I don't know where to start direction. And then I think even with SVG, that was probably not in the boring area for you. Even though you know SVG, it was in the middle flow state of this is like a good kind of challenging. (laughs) Yeah. 
Cassie, on one of your talks, you mentioned this idea that limitation breeds creativity. Could you talk a little bit more about that and your thoughts there? So I have quite bad anxiety. I'm quite bad with procrastinating as well. I overthink things and I procrastinate. And when I was learning how to code, there were lots of times where I'd sit down and stare at an empty VS Code screen and just be like, right, I need to make something <laughs> and then not knowing what to do. And it felt a lot like when I was younger and I really loved drawing. At a certain point, I started doubting myself a little bit and overthinking it. And my mom started what we called the scribble game. And the scribble game was great. She'd take the paper from me and she'd draw a scribble on it so that the paper wasn't blank anymore. And then she'd hand it back to me and I had to make that scribble into something. So it was a challenge, but there was a starting point. And I think that that's so important when you're trying to make something is to have a limitation and a challenge and a starting point. And if you've got those three things, I think it's a lot easier. I love that. I love the scribble game. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> How can we apply this to code? How can we do a code scribble? in order to lower that barrier. I guess that's like what you're saying about D3, having examples that you can kind of copy and paste and start with and code pen as well, like other people's pens that you can fork and Glitch has things that you can remix. So I think that's a really great place to get started with something new is just start with something and then see what you can make it into or see how you can break it. I think it's a good way to learn things. Yeah, I think that's great. I was also reading an article yesterday. I've been meaning to learn 3D modeling, like you were talking about, Nate, <laughs> that your kids are doing. And it was this article, someone did 100 days of like 3D modeling to learn. And they had a few things where it was like, one day they'll do a tutorial and the next day they'll make something with that knowledge. Um, so every other day they're doing a tutorial and like, it's like an easier day or every other day they do something easy and then they do something really hard. That's a good idea, right? Like, cause otherwise you're either burning yourself out or you're not learning as much as you could. I feel like we are so early in programming education in that there's not really, I'm lumping 3d modeling into this too. There's not really a good place that you can go that will give you sort of this off the shelf curriculum to learn 3d modeling or to learn D3. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky thing. I find it really hard even just trying to figure out what I need to learn to be a good front-end developer nowadays because I feel like there's just so much and I inevitably just go off on rabbit hole tangents all the time into the stuff that I'm really interested in. <laughs> and I'm like, I should be learning Webpack, but I'm going to learn some 3JS instead. <laughs> I feel like whenever I try to write an article... I turn into like grade school version of myself that would tweak the PowerPoint slide styles instead of like actually writing my presentation where like this is the only reason Eddie and my blog posts have something fun in them is I don't like writing. I'd rather <laughs> just do something fun like scribble on the page with SVG. <laughs> it's also a strength, I guess, because most of these things I do, I'll end up using them in work, right? I work with someone who uses the phrase procrastinating. That's when you know that you're really bad at procrastinating. So you have a couple of things that you want to do. And then if you're not doing one of them, then you're going to be doing the other one to procrastinate them. 
right procrastinate doing something else you should be doing so then yeah. at least you're moving forward <laughs> i was just talking to my friend about this she said she cleans when she has a deadline that sounds like such a superpower <laughs> like at least something's clean <laughs> Before I do a talk, my house is the tidiest it's ever been. <laughs> Everything is alphabetically organized. Oh Everything is polished. <laughs> Can you tell us about how you prep for your talks? What does that workflow look like? I prep with great difficulty <laughs> is the honest answer. I'm very lucky because there's a lot of people at Clear Left who do a lot of public speaking. Jeremy Keith being one of them, and he helped me huge amounts with my talk writing. I think that the first ever talk I did, it was just like a little talk at a meetup. I was just, I was just doing a show and tell basically of some of my code pens. I clutched a glass of wine for the whole thing and just showed people the fun stuff I was working on. But doing a conference talk, it needs to have a little bit more structure than just a list of things. I think that it's very rare that you see a talk that's just a list of things that is engaging. And I think Jeremy really helped with that because he's very good at telling stories. And he said to me, what you need is you need to make sure that your talk has a narrative structure, like you need a flow to it. So I wrote down everything that I wanted to talk about on post-it notes. And then Jeremy kind of prompted me with different narrative structures. So one being the hero's journey, I think was the one I used. So you've kind of got a, a hero, the hero learns something along the way and overcomes something. And you, I kind of looked at all of the notes that I had and tried to arrange them into different narrative structures and then eventually found one that I was happy with. What are the other narrative structures? What do you even Google to find this storytelling narrative arcs? The Wikipedia page on the hero's journey is pretty good. There's another one. There's a graph. So I'll link to this in the show notes. There's a blog called Readsy, and they've actually diagrammed out. There's a talk by Kurt Vonnegut where he actually goes through all these different narrative arcs. And uh, one of them that he talks about is the hero's journey, but they actually plot out Cinderella. Here, I'll send you the link. I love graphs of Cinderella. Excellent. Yeah. So Kurt Vonnegut, he wrote Slaughterhouse-Five, and he also gave this really fantastic talk. There's a YouTube video of it where it's Kurt Vonnegut graphs the plot of every story. There's actually a database of these different narrative plot lines. So database and storytelling. This is, yeah, this is right <laughs> up my street. Yeah, I love Kurt Vonnegut as well. I also found this chart of how happy Harry Potter is throughout all of the books. It looks like he just gets progressively less, less Yeah, happy. progressively sadder the whole time, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty dark by that in there. What are some other narrative arcs? Oh, the Rags to Riches, that's a narrative mm -hmm. arc. Oh, Rags to Riches has two. So there's the Rags to Riches Rise and Riches to Rags Fall Icarus, where you rise and then fall. I feel like that'd be such a disappointing book. Yeah. Everything's happy until the end. <laughs> You definitely wouldn't want to choose that for a conference talk. <laughs> right, for a conference, you got to end on the up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love the concept of using storytelling in talks because I think, especially with technical talks, it can be very like, all right, people want facts. I'm going to tell people how to use this thing. I'm just going to have slide after slide. of Here's a fact. Here's a best practice. And then it can be really hard to sit through an hour of that and keep paying attention yeah. Um, and just like keep learning things. 
I think it's the human element, isn't it? Again, you need more whimsy and more human elements to things. I think some of the best conference talks that I've seen have been, I learned this thing by doing it wrong for ages. And this is what happened because I was doing it wrong and I learned this lesson the hard way. I think that that's really good because it feels, you kind of have empathy with them. It feels more relatable. Right, and it's like, I can avoid this pain myself. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody likes to laugh at other people's misfortune as well. (laughs) So you just started a creative coding meetup. Yes. Right before lockdown, right? (laughs) Yeah, we had about three meetups and then lockdown happened. It was really great. There's a conference in Brighton called FFConf and Charlotte Dan did a talk. She's amazing. She does lots of really cool generative art. Um, She makes generative jewelry as well, which is very cool. Um, And a lot of my Brighton nerd friends, we all went to this conference and we saw her talk and she talks through pen plotting and generative art with CSS and generative art with JavaScript and using hardware and creating physical things like jewelry and stuff and we were all really inspired so afterwards we were like let's have a meetup because it's really hard to find time to do all of that stuff and motivation to do side projects outside of work so we decided to do a meetup that wasn't the normal kind of talk structure where you go along and watch people talk and then leave again. It was more of a, like, we call it a knitting circle for nerds. So everyone just goes along and we all have our laptops and we just tinker on projects and kind of help each other and then do a little show and tell at the end and eat crisps. And sometimes there's a very, very small dog. A very, very small dog. Very, very small chihuahua. The muse. Yeah, the muse. But yeah, now that's all moved online now because of the plague. It's been really lovely because we've got this little Slack community that has been there the whole time that lockdown's been happening and quarantine's been happening. And it's just been such a great, bunch of people creativity without the pressure and coding without the kind of link to work and career development and stuff it's just feels like a very free space and everyone there has been super open about feeling a bit creatively restricted or battling with balancing out life stuff and coding so yeah it's it's been a really really lovely group of people and Chris one of the people from Brighton Generator he is just a project machine so even when everyone else hasn't been making stuff he's just been knocking out projects pretty much every week so it's been wonderful watching what he's been making. That sounds so nice to just have that group especially in these times on Twitter, I feel like a lot of people are having just such a hard time with like a lot of people get inspiration from nature or talking to people or going places. And it's just so hard when you always stay in the same house and you see the same things and the same people all the time. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's fine. People shouldn't be outputting stuff all the time. You shouldn't feel like you have to constantly be producing things. Sometimes you have to take time to absorb stuff. So if that's mm. you know reading books or watching tutorials or going for walks or that kind of thing, I think it's all just as important. Totally agree. 
If you're wanting to learn more about SVG filters, Sarah Swaydan has an amazing set of articles on CodeDrops, which I learned everything from. They're really great. One of the things I appreciate about you is that you remember people's names. I've noticed that in your talks as well, when you are saying, you're not just like, oh, there's a blog post on SVG filters. You're like, Sarah Swaydon wrote this filter and you should know her as well as her article. And I really appreciate that. I think I would like to see more of that in general. It's so important. One of the things that brings me the most joy, which I've started doing, is there are a few times where I had made a code pen or something or written a blog post and someone actually just sent me a direct message just saying, oh, I just read your article and it was really helpful. Thank you for that. So I do that now. Every time I read something and it's useful, I get hold of the person directly and just say thank you. And it's such a small thing. But yeah, I think it's really nice, especially for people who don't have analytics and tracking on their things because I don't I don't really want to know who's on my blog because I get a bit too overwhelmed with numbers and statistics but it's really nice to get a message from someone saying that they enjoyed it I love that and also I feel like for me the better something is probably the less likely I'll reach out to someone to say that I enjoyed it because I'm like oh, there's so many people who are telling them that it's great. (laughs) As a creator, it's so nice to get any message. So I think being on the other side has kind of helped that anxiety. Yeah, I think we put people on pedestals and don't reach out for that reason. I think we should stop doing that. You also recently released a new newsletter. I think it's monthly. What was your motivation behind starting it? I think it's like solely focused on SVG, which is just like a great niche. Where do you find inspiration for that newsletter? There was a little patch of time where Greensock were hosting the Code Pen challenges. I think it was about a month. And every week, Jack from Greensock got hold of me with a whole load of code pens for me to look through and judge. And I just loved it. It was so much fun. I spent every Sunday evening just going through all of these different code pens and writing people messages and telling them what I liked about it. And I got so many lovely messages back. And it just felt so joyful and so lovely to be able to signal boost some people who were making really cool things and give people some feedback. And I basically just loved it. So I thought, that I would like to carry on doing that. And then I had also just before lockdown happened, I did a workshop in Brussels and I met Louis, who's also putting the newsletter together with me. And we've been internet friends for quite a while, but it was, we met in person for the first time and we just got along really well. So we decided we wanted to do a little side project together. Yeah, he's been writing some SVG tips for a while as well on Twitter. And I'd been looking at those and thinking, oh, it would be great if we could get these tips out to some more people. Oh, I've seen those. They're so good. Yeah, I learned things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. He's a creative coding tour de force. He is. <laughs> Cassie, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really delightful. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It was lovely to meet both of you. And especially because I've been such a huge fan of Amelia's work for a while. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you made it to the end. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you have a minute, a review on iTunes would help other people find the podcast. We have a lot of great content coming up. To be notified of new episodes, hit that subscribe button.